Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at The Cherry Tree Carol by my favourite poets. You know the one I've mentioned before, you know, I, I, I look at all these poets but I've already stated who my favourite poet is, said so in episode two, it's the author of the Trois Corbys, which is the poem I looked at in that episode. My favourite poet is, of course, Anonymous. And that sounds like I'm being flippant, but like I said before, the difference between um, a poem that's anonymous and a poem that is sometimes, let's say, anonymous because the person wanted to conceal their identity because maybe they were dissing the king or something like that in their poem. But um, most of the time when we when we look at a poem that is anonymous... It's not because there's one lone genius writer who decides to remain unnamed and unheralded by choice, stoically so. No, the reason why it's anonymous is because it's not the property of one particular artist. It's not the property of the lone genius. It is often the property of a community. And so um, this ballad, which is the... Um, I keep wanting to call it the, the the carol of the cherry tree but it's the cherry tree carol this ballad the cherry tree carol is um, another ballad it's an oral ballad and it's a very early example of the ballad it's found in the um in the child ballads so that's a collection of ballads that were anthologized by francis child who mainly set about collecting examples of folk ballads and oral ballads he was particularly disgusted by the broadside ballad which was the popular ballad of his time and other times the broadside ballad was a printed ballad and it often focused on sort of salacious things it was almost like the broadside ballads they were sold on um, they were called a broadside because they were literally they were sold on one sheet of paper which is quite broad the term broadsheet actually comes from that and the broadside ballads were sold on street corners and they were seen as the tabloid papers of their times because they would focus on a, on a, on a notorious case that more maybe involved salacious details or was a murder case or something like that. And they would um, write about them in a very sort of like a sleazy way, I guess. And I think they're, they're still important artefacts. And actually, I think Oxford, I think Oxford University or some site, some Oxford site, has got digitized copies online of a broadside ballads and they're worth looking at but these ballads are different in some ways a lot of ways from broadside ballads so these are ballads that were created by communities and these these weren't these were real poems of the people as well so i'm not going to go into as much detail because i already have gone into quite a lot of detail about how these ballads were created the people that made these ballads and everything like that before if you really want a more um thorough so summing up of what a ballad uh, an oral ballad is then please listen to episode two of rusty sonnets and that's the one about the broadside ballad for trois corbys now the broadside ballads were written in the time not broadside ballads sorry the border ballads the border ballads were written at a time when there was a lot of disorder on the on the border so it's just before um i think it's before the unification of the countries under king james the border was a bit of a lawless place for the border between Scotland and England. People would commit crimes either side and then hop over to the other side where they couldn't get arrested. Now, this ballad is a lot earlier than the border ballads. 
And how do we recognize sort of the earlier ballads compared to the border ballads? This ballad is, um, it has a religious theme and a lot of the earlier ballads had religious themes. So these ballads were, were the work of a community. And I think, I think we'll look at how those aspects manifest themselves in a poem. So it could be that some person composed one version of that ballad, performed it to crowds. Crowds actually remembered how the ballad went. People would sort of they would imbibe the poem perform them to other people and sometimes people would very consciously add parts of their own other times little copying errors would creep in but the copying errors would actually sound better perhaps or be more interesting than the original versions and so those would carry on from mind to mind quite a darwinian process i think we'll talk about that when we're wandering off on one later on so ear to ear mouth to mouth that's how these ballads were passed and they were very much the, the work of a community rather than the work of an individual i think we're kind of really fight it's quite hard to understand that now isn't it especially if you're listening at this in the, to this in a certain western country where we, we really fetishize authorship and we really make you know authorship is so important and of course it is important that we create a work want to be Want to be recognized as the creator of that work so but this is different this is something that belongs to the community and is created by the community and is created quite organically it's not like the whole village got together somewhere and went let's all write a ballad together they didn't it was just more someone wrote a ballad people remembered that ballad people recited that ballad people just changed it and um, it was a communal property rather than the, again the, the the glorious product of one soul tormented genius poet author so this is an earlier ballad because of its because of its origins um it's interesting that it's called a carol as well and again as i previously pointed out especially if we look at the meter of a ballad it's very similar to hymns and there are this almost shows sort of almost common origins, not just between poems and songs, but between ballads and religious songs and carols and other forms of popular songwriting. I think that's enough of a grounding, you know. I, w I want to get straight into the poem. The Cherry Tree Carol by Anonymous Joseph was an old man, and an old man was he, when he wedded Mary in the land of Galilee. Joseph and Mary walked through an orchard good, where was cherries and berries, so red as any blood? Joseph and Mary walked, through an orchard green, Where was berries and cherries, as thick as might be seen? O oh, then bespoke Mary, so meek and so mild, Pluck me one cherry, Joseph, for I am with child. O oh, then bespoke Joseph, with words most unkind, Let him pluck thee a cherry, that brought thee with child. O oh, then bespoke the babe, within his mother's womb. Bow down then the tallest tree, for my mother to have some. Then bowed down the tallest tree, unto his mother's hand. Then she cried, See, Joseph, I have cherries on command. O then bespake Joseph, I have done Mary wrong, but cheer up my dearest, and be not cast down. Then Mary plucked a cherry, as red as the blood. Then Mary went home with her heavy load. Then Mary took her babe, and sat him on her knee, saying, My dear son, tell me, what this world will be? Oh, I shall be dead, mother, as the stones in the wall, over stones in the streets, mother, shall mourn for me all. Upon Easter day, mother, my uprising shall be, 
over sun and the moon, mother, shall both rise with me. So that was the Cherry Tree Carol by Anonymous. I found that really awkward to read. And that make, already makes me think, because the words just felt quite awkward and clunky in places to read out, it makes me think, wow, maybe this is more of a song than a, than a spoken poem. Maybe the, the, it, to slow it down and put a melody on it, maybe those words would sound better. I don't know. But there's still plenty in this poem that I think is worth looking at, and so many things of interest have in this poem. I picked a really long poem last week. I did Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti, and I found myself rushing through the poem and the podcast because it was a long, long poem. And then I didn't have a lot of time just to really pick the poem apart as well. So I'm quite happy to be looking at a shorter poem, but it's still full of intense and interesting imagery. So what's the basic argument of the poem? Joseph, he's an old man, isn't he? I mean, I think you get it. You can listen to it. You know what happened. I don't think there's anything too sort of cryptic going on here. There's lots of imagery. There's lots of interesting metaphors. But I don't think the the action in the, in the poem is, is that cryptic. It's basically Joseph and Mary, Mary were walking in the gardens in, in Galilee, the orchard in Galilee as well. And then um, Joseph sort of, uh, Mary says, oh, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm with child. I don't know if that's her giving him the news. And he's an old man as well, so we wonder how, how capable he is. And, of course, Mary's Mary's very young. So um, I don't want to sound too irreverent here, because I know that some of my listeners might be Christians, and I so I don't really want to... You know, I'm looking at the poem, and I'm looking at this poem written in a particular time, but I, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm, I'm mocking um, the, the story of, of the, the nativity. So... But let's just get back to it. So, so yes, Joseph then says, well, you know, she says, get me a cherry. He says, well, I'm not getting you a cherry. Whoever got you, whoever got you with child can get you a cherry. Um, to which point um, the, the babe speaks from Mary's womb and, and says, um, tallest tree, bow down now, give my mum some fruit. And it happens. And then she says, see, Joseph, I have cherries on command. So she's kind of flexing now. And then uh, he says, you know, he feels terrible because all of a sudden what's going on? The baby is talked from inside the womb. The tree is bent down and given her cherries. And he feels like, oh, my goodness. OK, and now I understand where this baby might have come from. So um, it repeats how Mary plucked the cherry and then she went home. And then another strange happening happens. So it's already quite strange that the baby has spoken from the womb. But then Mary places, she takes the babe and places him on her knee and then has a chat with him you know tell me what this what this world will be and and he says and this is really eerie i think oh i shall be as dead mother as the stones in the wall over stones in the streets mother shall mourn for me all and then of course he says he will rise again though so he'll be dead but he will rise again on easter day as does the sun and the moon both shall rise with me I said this poem was old, but I didn't really say how old it was. It comes from sort of, it's probably from before 1500. There's evidence of it being used in, in, in plays or something around 1500. So it's it's probably older than that. So it's predating the Renaissance, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it's it's an old, old poem. And we do wonder, like, sort of, you know, so the, the, the ideas of Christianity and, and how perhaps within these communities how much they were woven within within pagan beliefs um one thing we do recognize from his poem in the imagery 
is something we see in a lot of European paintings in which um, lots of European things tend to find their way into depictions of the Middle East. So being being obviously the Middle Eastern characters that, that we find in, in the Bible and in, and in the Old Testament and the New Testament tend to look like Europeans. They tend to look like Italians or even more northern, more northern most Europeans than that, you know, sort of um, blue eyes and pale skin um, rather than looking like people that we expect how we expect people to look from those regions so and and also the sort of the occurrence of fruits such as apples and and cherries and sort of again sort of the, the more um the fruit that we experience from seasonal forests which are normally a bit further north or south um than the than the middle east and the and the locations of the happenings in the bible so cherries are there but, but i mean cherries have an iconographic quality and the way that cherries and blood are compared in this poem as well it's quite interesting now i don't know about the um the the idea of the cherry and how the cherry is associated with um the virgin and so we have the virgin mary and so there's the iconographic idea of the cherry i mean obviously we we have the old the old phrase pop the cherry now i don't know how far back that idea but the idea of actually associating a cherry with sort of the, the you know the, the the virginal qualities of a character are themselves interesting and how he feels that the cherry has already been plucked or the cherry let him let him that has um got view of child pluck the cherry joseph says but the cherry is also associated with blood repeatedly throughout the poem and there we have the christian imagery of blood as well of blood sacrifice um the, especially with the eucharist which i was talking about last week as well so so the ideas they're quite deep these ideas of these ideas of blood and sacrifice and death and purity and virginity um all of these seem to be tied up with the with the ideas of berries and cherries and blood now one thing that perhaps lets me makes us think um, that there are different authors at work within this poem and that it is a sort of group exercise and in fact some parts might have just been pasted in wholesale is the actual sort of change of tone throughout the poem so we begin of course with this 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 very familiar story of a, a person who's with child and the and the father does not think that he is you know the, the actual biological father or the husband of a pregnant wife. Well, he knows he isn't. The, he has. <laughs> he knows he's not the father of his biological father of his child because um, this is the virgin birth. And so um, he. So, so yeah, it's quite normal at this point in that sense. But then when she says, you know, when when Christ starts speaking from the womb, that's when things get quite strange, and then commands the commands the tree to bend for her now this isn't something that we find in the new testament but it is meant to echo stories that are in the um apocryphal bibles um or the apocryphal testaments so these are kind of other other testaments and i think this is i can't remember which this is named after one of the um apostles that wrote the original four new testament books uh, is that matthew mark luke and john I think it's Matthew, but it's not Matthew's gospel. It's like another one that's attributed to Matthew. And so, um, and, the, and this idea of the sort of speaking Jesus or Jesus re returning his speech to 
um joseph in this sense um it is in that it is in that bible story in the in the apocryphal matthew whereas um we see this idea i'm actually reminded of two one version of two nativity stories one is and i might have inaccuracies but one is the nativity story as it appears in the quran um, and that is when mary is shunned from her village when she does become pregnant with the child now I'm not again I'm not a scholar so I'm really happy to be corrected and I probably desperately need to be corrected but um the Islamic faith does not believe that Christ is the son of God but they believe that he was a prophet who was born from a virgin birth so that part is still kept there in the bible so he has a miraculous birth but that doesn't necessarily make him the son of God and so when he's um what happens is um Mary shunned from the village and then when when she sits by an old like dead fig tree and then the tree comes to life and she starts eating the fruit from it as she gives birth to Jesus then she returns to the village of Jesus and I think Jesus again they they are ready to kind of punish her and it's only when Jesus starts talking so this baby starts talking about the miraculous nature of his birth and his conception so that's quite similar to the story told in this one um, another another story where a child where a holy child is born and again again starts talking right away as soon as they're born is the is the nativity of the Buddha, one of the nativity stories of the Buddha where he he kind of leaps from his mother's side and stands up normally and starts talking to everyone in the court. So it's interesting that with the comparative legends and the comparative mythologies, because obviously if you're you're a Christian then you don't necessarily follow this particular version of the bible story is quite strange it probably probably just as strange to a lot of christians as it is to anyone else who doesn't know the background reading this poem so so we get that strange turnout and then joseph becomes remorseful now the other sort of interesting images apart from cherries that are repeated and red as blood and this idea oh one more thing about blood actually blood and cherries and about blood and that is according to the ideas of reproduction at the time blood was seen as the sort of reproductive organ now one thing that maybe we would know about this would be obviously um from um menstruation so we never blood so people would associate perhaps blood with fertility so cherries and blood and fertility there they are now it was also seen as um this is something i read up quite relatively recently and and always stuck in my head so you might ask okay that's the female side but what about the male reproductive product and people said yes that was a particularly refined form of blood that's what they so would still believe it was blood but it would look different because it was a very i don't know intensified or you know refined uh, a very pure version of a reproductive reproductive aspects of blood obviously we did not know about what the actual reproductive organs uh, reproductive matter was until the last century so we can't really feel that superior we needed very powerful um, microscopes and other things to really discover dna and the double fit and the double helix and of course you had i think it's who was the guy who grew peas i can't remember his name but uh the monk who grew peas who discovered kind of heredity and how it works as well that was kind of in the um i think that was in the 19th century so again we've we've, we've you know compared this is a pre 1500 poems so a 15th century poem so hundreds and hundreds of the years before people really started to work out what was going on here with reproduction but again that i think that's the relevance of blood now here's the strange thing here 
and this is another thing that makes me think this is a poem that where little bits were put together at different times and that's when mary um mary went home with her heavy load then mary took her babe and sat him on her knee and so, so wait a minute this baby's in the stomach and now she's just gone home and taken him out plumped her, plumped her on her on her knee this is this is something's not quite right here something's really stretching i know that we read fantasy and even sort of uh, in in religious stories of course the bounds of believability are different to what we would expect from a news story but even now how strange that she just like pulls the baby out well she doesn't even say pulls the baby out just says she puts the baby on her knee so we have no idea whether she's just quickly given birth to him or whether he's just popped out of the womb for a quick visit and a little chat before going back in we don't know we really don't know what's going on here and so i think um this is more a sign that there's probably an another ballad or maybe a lot this is the ballad here's one of two things are happening here either another ballad has just been copy pasted onto the end of this ballad another song perhaps or perhaps it's a longer poem in which the, the birth of the child happens and then she perhaps sits the already talking from the womb child on her knee and they have a little chat now, I think those are two sort of options that we could go with. But either way, you know, they've either cut, they've either pasted something in or they've hacked something out because it's a very strange kind of way of moving from one thing to the next going on there. And then um, the, there's something that really gets me about the answer to her question. My dear son, tell me what this world will be. And um he he says, oh, I shall be as dead, mother, as the stones in the wall. Over stones in the streets, mother, shall mourn for me all. There's a ridiculousness to a child speaking from a womb or a baby being able to talk or a child being quickly removed from a womb in a way that isn't described and placed on the knee and then having a little chat. And yet there's something about that stanza I've just read out that chills me to the bone that feels so irredeemably sad a baby being able to tell of their own death you know somewhere some child being born some child that's growing in a womb or a child that's just been born be able to say that i will be dead um even if they live a long life that's their destiny and we don't talk about that a lot do we we, we would never say that about anyone's baby even then I, th I just think we're very delicate in how we talk about those issues and so um that's that's that but there's something really sad about that there's something really sad that 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 is the truth that every you know every child every baby that's that's alive now like everything that is alive now everything that's alive now will be dead and will be dead for far longer than it was alive and there's something just so sad so so sad about that that really gets me um, but then he says, of course, and this is the, the Christian aspect on Easter Day, I shall rise. Um, my uprising shall be over oh, sun and the moon mother shall both rise with me. I reckon that bit's a little bit pagan, a little bit pagan at the end. You know, we have this idea of Christianity and how certain aspects of Christianity, for instance, Christmas, you know, the idea of, um, I mean, I know we get a lot of Christmas just from the Victorians, but the idea of of conifer trees and um, lights and baubles and stuff like that come as much from sort of the the pagan midwinter festivals of lights and celebrations 
um but where we tried to create a bright environment i guess to sort of fend up off against the the blues and the depression that comes with with not having any daylight for most of it for, for quite a few months in seasonal climates so i when he says the sun and the moon will rise with me it's very circle of life isn't it it's very it's not quite the same it's referring to something that kind of cyclically rises and wanes and rises and wanes and rises and wanes which is not really how we look at the um the story of the resurrection the resurrection is this very definitive yes he dies but then he comes up he ascends into heaven and he rules in glory and that's the ultimate end it's not he doesn't come down and die again so much more in common with ideas of paganism and the spirituality of the land i think at the end of that poem and again that's what we should expect from the oral origins of the poem of of the culture of the, the folk culture at the time being this compromise between the relatively newly arrived christian religion and the the pagan religions that were probably thousands of years predating those and this kind of blend together this particular flavor of 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 historic british christianity that becomes apparent in this poem i'm not going to speak too much about meter um because it's a ballad and i've explained the ballad and it's pretty much the same it's it's basically lines that are either four stresses or they're either sometimes they're, they're, they're always in quatrains they're in four stresses normally the first sometimes you get a four stress and then a three stress line but sometimes um, you get a four stress and a four stress line this actually alternates between the two um, so sometimes yes oh then bespoke the babe within his mother's womb so actually you're getting some three stress lines but it's a mixture of four stress lines and three stress lines and that's normally what we find in a ballad and quatrains and everything is very you know the way things move it's very um self-contained now the story's a little bit different which is um a lot of the border ballads and a lot of the other oral ballads especially the ones that focus on murder and uh, and adultery and cheating and all these often tragic events is that they often happen uh, medius res which is sort of almost like the final act of the of the play they happen sort of right in the thick of things things are kicking off that's when you join the ballad whereas this is a little bit different this is almost like a folk tale um but we also should appraise this so i said already yes it's the, the title says that it's a carol but um it's quite a strange carol could you imagine singing this at Christmas outside someone's door, hoping they'll bring out some mince pies and some eggnog? I don't think so. It's a bit too weird, isn't it? This isn't the sort of like little get dressed in your your tie and stuff and go to midnight mass and then sing this this very strange thing which focuses on on suspicions of infidelity before moving on to a child speaking from a womb lots of imagery of blood and cherries that doesn't seem too appropriate and then finally kind of a child just suddenly somehow being put on mary's knee and then speaking about death and how he will die but he will rise again i mean yeah lots of christian themes within it but is it appropriate for a carol <laughs> it might have been a carol actually because this is me this is me i've just been talking about our our post victorian idea of what christmas is and how the victorians have really so it's more perhaps what the victorians that brought to the idea of christmas rather than perhaps what christmas was before we got our victorian ver our victorian and let's say um coca-cola father christmas sort of way of seeing christmas maybe it mu was much more of a sort of a raw and primal thing beforehand wasn't it banned by cromwell as well i'm sure cromwell banned christmas because he was so fun and um yeah so so 
as a carol, it's it's strange by today's standards, but it's probably completely normal by the standards that came before it. <laughs> I think I've spoken enough about that. Uh, there is another podcast on ballads. I'm also thinking, actually, of um, doing a few bonus episodes. Now, one episode I might make about... Um, I might do something quite regular next year, which I was thinking of doing a Paradise Lost book club. So we'll look at Paradise Lost by Milton. Now, it's 12 books long, so I was thinking for one episode a month, we deal with one book, one whole book. I won't read the whole thing out, obviously. I might read some expert excerpts here and there. So it will be a bit different to the normal one, but it will be a pure kind of Paradise Lost book club where we look at one book of Paradise Lost and then throughout a whole year, starting from January, we get through the whole book together and you can read it during the week or after, after reading the podcast, it's up to you. So that's one thing I was thinking of doing. Another thing I was thinking of doing is doing some bonus, because I, I find myself repeating myself a lot now about meter and rhythm and, and metaphor and simile and stuff like that, or trying to redirect people to relevant episodes. So what I thought of doing was doing about in my own sweet time, doing about four or five um, bonus episodes that do do a sort of a more detailed look, just at something like so rhythm and meter, one looking at rhyme, one looking at image and metaphor, one looking at um, stanza and form and genre and stuff like that. So maybe doing four or five episodes where I can just direct you. If ever this gets a little bit confusing, and I try to keep it as simple as I can, but I can always direct you just to maybe an hour-long episode specifically about that particular aspect of poetry. So I think that would help if I do that, and then I don't have to repeat myself as much, because I'm, you know, we're um, 21 episodes in now, so I'm getting at that point already where I'm repeating myself, and I don't want to do that too much. But anyway, enough waffling about that. It's time for me to wander off on one take it away rick flair thank you rick flair so i was going to go off on one I, because it's about this idea of a work of art not belonging to us i think i spoke about it or i gave it lip service the other day so i was I think i was quoting um nick cave in another episode and nick cave said something he was talking about the work he was he was asked about cancel culture so when there's an artist that we really like or we really we really like their work but we find out something horrible about the artist or the artist perhaps turns out to be a not very good human being and we don't really want to be part of their sustained legacy and yet we really love the work does that mean we have to give up on the work and i think that's an important question which i'm not going to answer <laughs> right now so a bit part of his response was well you know when when the work goes out there when the work is released into the world it no longer belongs to the artist it belongs to the listener it belongs to the communities so and i think that's not a bad answer actually so, but the idea, I think, and so that's what I like about the ballad, which is it's, it's, there's, there's no artist, is there? I mean, imagine you can't really have a problem with a ballad if someone says, well, there is one person in this community of, of, of tens or hundreds that helped make this ballad where it was a bit, a bit of a bit of a git. Uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't carry, does it? So um, I was thinking about ballads and how they're not the property of the, of the artist and how maybe even the work of art in some ways and the property of the artist. And I don't know why, but I was thinking of the idea of memetics. And memetics is something that's introduced by Richard Dawkins. So we've gone from religion to Richard Dawkins in one episode. But if we, um, in his 
classic book for selfish dream which is a brilliant book and i think a lot of people have read that book by title and not really looked at what the book is about i can't really summarize it now but it's basically the idea that um genes are the things that want to reproduce themselves they reproduce themselves by making survival machines which are bodies or creatures or animals and um and so the 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 functioning of the genes is selfish because they just want to make more and more copies of themselves but that doesn't necessarily mean that the body that it makes and the mind that it makes and the animal that it makes has to be selfish too and i think that's where people misunderstood the book they felt that the book was just about we have to be selfish or saying that nature is fundamentally selfish but actually no and he wanted to call it the selfish gene and the altruistic organism pointing out that actually organisms themselves that genes make they can act very selflessly they can sacrifice themselves if we look at colonies of bees and stuff like that um they don't that doesn't necessarily mean that the animal that the genes make acts behave selfishly there's a sort of almost paradoxical but not quite idea that actually the genes are selfish they just want to make more versions of themselves but sometimes actually the best way to make more versions of of itself is to create a body to place itself in a body that is actually quite cooperative and isn't completely selfish so that's the basic gist of a selfish gene but there's a final chapter in the selfish gene about something called memes and memes according to dawkins are like if there is is there another kind of replicator so he sees the big biological replicator as genes they are the things that want to make copies of themselves is there anything else that wants to make copies of itself all the time and has those, that same selfish drive and so his idea was the ideas of culture something that could be memorized and then passed on um, and so that was called the meme now it's I, I can't imagine how that i think it was the end of the 70s when the selfish gene was published but now how would that read it's not as miraculous now i mean the meme itself obviously we have we use the term meme but we mean meme in reference to normally things on the internet which are sort of mixtures of of text and image that we post on social media that's what a meme is now called and so it's not entirely related to what dawkins meant by it but he did mean that there that so anything you know when we say something goes viral where it's got to be passed on and passed on and passed on that could be a meme but more so perhaps any song that everyone finds in their head that is the sort of a meme with more reproductive power in the same way that a gene has more reproductive power because it can make hundreds of copies of itself without much effort and so his point ultimately is that in the same way that the genes when we call genes selfish we don't mean that they're actually selfish we just it's, it's a way of describing how they behave for, for what they do we don't think that they have little minds of their own and they're going ha 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 i'm going to be really selfish here it's the same with memes it's a kind of a mindless process that creates things such as design um, creates things that can be quite complex just because there is a process that whittles things down into forms that are very very successful now um, I think I've quoted the poet Don Patterson in a few episodes before and he said that a poem is a perfect little machine for remembering itself. It was quite a famous and infamous expression and a lot of people were exasperated but a lot of us that had, that had read The Selfish Gene knew exactly where he was coming from, where he got that one from. And so the idea that actually a poem is something that is like a meme, it's viral, it sticks in people's heads and then it replicates itself. And it does seem to describe what happens with the cultures that produce oral cultures specifically um, that produce things such as 
ballads and how ballads sort of come to pass. It could be that it could be seen that ballads actually write themselves. They have the poems that write themselves. And to a certain degree, perhaps even with the idea, if if uh, if we are just sort of the survival machines for memes, as we are the survival machines for genes, then perhaps also when we're writing something, we're not really writing the poem. It's the poem is almost using us to write itself. People might feel that way, especially if we write and um, people who experience something called flow. So it's when you sit down, if you're a writer, you sit down at a typewriter and it's almost like it's you're not the one making it happen. It's almost happening by itself. That's the feeling that seems to accompany the state of flow. You're doing it almost mindlessly and thoughtlessly. You're just able to write and the words just come tumbling out of you. So that definitely seems to concord with it, doesn't it? I think there are plenty of problems <laughs> with memes as a as an ultimate theory of culture and I think it's sort of can even though I think it's a really interesting way of looking at some aspects of culture but ultimately culture has to be judged by its own metrics sometimes and I think the problem with memetics is it's a sort of um to quote someone else actually Daniel Dennett who's another sort of Darwinian philosopher who also you know he's in a similar to mindset to Dawkins in many ways, he spoke about reductionism and he spoke about how there's good reductionism because it actually whittles something down to a fine point and we can understand it better. And then there's greedy reductionism. Now, he's someone who kind of believes in memes, but I think maybe memes are greedy reductionism, which is when we are cutting out a lot of a nuance and we're not really understanding things. We're just trying to whittle something down to a particular way of seeing things that we're not prepared to sacrifice and leave. And I think memes ultimately is a way of making culture and art and everything a sort of another branch of biology. And then we have our perfect, complete scientific theory. And I just don't think it works like that. I don't think you can get a very brilliant sort of understanding of art from those things. I'm going to leave it there. I've had a good old waffle, haven't I? So thank you for listening. Thank you for um, listening to previous episodes. And if you've shared this podcast with anyone, thank you for doing that. Um, if you'd like to share it, then please, hey, share it. You can do that in your face-to-face contact with your fellow human beings, almost in an oral mouth-to-mouth and ear-to-ear type way. Don't sort of try and put the podcast in their mouth i think i said something similar last week so um but if you want to sort of go by more sort of conventional digital means then feel free to leave a nice review on itunes or give it a nice i think you can review it on spotify as well and yeah this is available if you're listening to this on soundcloud or something it is available on itunes and spotify and i think you can download it from the rss feed as well it's on stitcher for android um but thank you very much for listening Um, I've got to run off on my domestic duties. So, uh, yeah, have a good one. See you next week. Bye bye.